Welcome everybody to the inaugural Kenneth Carmiole Endowed Annual Lecture on the Book Trades at Rare Book School. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the executive director of the school and I'm extremely excited to welcome you to this inaugural lecture. I'd like to begin with a word or two about Ken Carmiole, our benefactor this evening. After graduating with a degree in history from the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he began selling books in his junior year, a glimpse of things to come, Ken worked as a Peace Corps volunteer. Returning to Southern California, he then earned a master's degree in library science from UCLA. Since 1976, he has owned and operated Kenneth Carmiole Bookseller, an antiquarian bookselling firm specializing in early printed books and manuscripts, now based in Santa Monica. Sure, Ken Carmiole is a bookseller and a gifted one too, but deep in his core, Ken Carmiol is also a philanthropist in the etymological sense of that word, philos anthropos, a lover of humanity and a person who cares deeply about the stewardship of the historical record in its many forms. The Kenneth Carmiole Endowed Annual Lecture on the Book Trades at Rare Book School is but the latest of a series of strategic benefactions that Ken has made. At UCSB, he first created an endowment for the purchase of rare books, and then a second endowment for an annual research fellowship at the UCSB Library. He has also established library endowments at UCLA, including one for a lecture series on the history of the book trade at the Clark Library, and another for an annual lecture or conference on archival studies at the Information School, and a third for a research fellowship. Through the Book Club of California, he has also endowed a lecture on the history of the book trade in California and the West. In addition to his charitable investments in the world of books, Ken has rendered energetic service to a variety of bookish organizations. The UCLA Research Library Board of Visitors, the Library Council at UCSB, the Advisory Committee of the California Rare Book School, the Board of Visitors of the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, the Director's Advisory Council of the William Andrews Clark Library, the National Board of the ABAA, the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, the Book Club of California, and most importantly of all, obviously, the board of directors of Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. Small wonder then that among the many plaudits that he has received, Ken has also been given the UCLA Library and Information Studies Alumni Association's Distinguished Alumni Award. 
We who are gathered this evening for this inaugural lecture are the happy beneficiaries of Ken's largesse. Please join me even virtually in thanking Ken. And now for our speaker. Professor Michael Winship is the only individual who has taught at Rare Book School each and every summer since it first came to existence at Columbia University in 1983. One indication of his vast expertise is that over these 38 years, he has taught or co-taught 10 different courses. Michael has also been an active teacher in the groundbreaking summer seminars sponsored by the American Antiquarian Society's program in the history of the book in American culture. For some 30 years, Michael was a member of the English department of the University of Texas at Austin, where he is currently Professor Emeritus. From 2003 until his retirement, Michael held the Iris Howard Regents Professorship in English Literature. How did he get there? For a start, Michael's AB from Harvard College was awarded magna cum laude. His major, German and Scandinavian literature. Michael then worked first as a forwarder at the Harcourt Bindery in Boston, and then as a freelance hand binder and book restore in New Hampshire before earning a master's degree from the Graduate School of Library and Information Science at Simmons College. Crucially, between 1978 and 1991, Michael Winship edited and completed the final three volumes of the Bibliography of American Literature, for which labor he received the highly prestigious Bibli Bibliography Prize of the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers. Michael's work on the BAL is now legendary for the simple reason that it's magisterial. Michael's doctorate is from Oxford University where he studied under the great scholar and perhaps even greater educator, Donald Francis Mackenzie. The book that came from his DPhil thesis was no ordinary production. American literary publishing in the mid 19th century, the business of Tickner and Fields published by Cambridge University Press is a landmark study. Small wonder then that in 1997, Michael Winship was awarded the Individual Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Printing History Association, or AFA. He subsequently co-edited and contributed to the Industrial Book, 1840 to 1880, volume three of the History of the Book in America, published by UNC uh, Press which received the St. Louis Mercantile Library Prize in American Bibliography from the Bibliographical Society of America. But this recitation of Michael Winship's bibliographical and book historical achievements 
in no way accounts for the astonishing generosity that he has shown to many younger scholars over the years. I myself have been a great beneficiary of his academic friendship. A far greater consequence, however, is the fact that Michael Winship was the motive force behind the creation of the Younger Scholars Program of the Bibliographical Society of America. He not only conceived the idea and raised the money too, but he also successfully ran the program for many years. There is much more that one could say, but suffice it now to relate that Michael will address us this evening on subscription publishing in America over three centuries. Please join me in welcoming Michael Winship. Thank you, Michael. Um, maybe I should just sit down now and let people, uh, you can carry on. No. <laughs> thank you, Michael. And thank you, Rare Book School, for hosting the lecture. And thank you, all of you out there who are attending virtually for being here. But above all, we must thank Ken Carmiol, uh, whose generosity has made this lecture possible. Let me share my screen, which is always a challenge. Okay, there we are. Many of my, uh, excuse me, yes, many of my thoughts this evening are the fruits of a seminar on subscription publishing that I directed in June 2016 at the American Antiquarian Society. I'd like to thank also the Society and especially Paul Erickson for organizing and sponsoring that seminar. But I especially want to recognize the many contributions of the participants in that seminar, who through their comments, questions, and insights help me reach some of the preliminary conclusions that I'm offering here tonight. In preparing this lecture, I've also received help and advice from Lynn Farrington, Basie Gil Gitlin, and Jim Green, and I want to thank them as well. So, maybe I should go back. Here is my lecture title, Subscription Publishing in America Over Three Centuries. And let me start. It is claimed that the subscription book trade is no upstart, now for the first time making its appearance and claiming a share of public patronage. But on the contrary, that it is older than the old regular trade and that every considerable work published from 50 to 150 years ago had either a printed list of subscribers to it or a reference to agents by whose canvassing it was to be circulated, this we readily grant. This claim made over 150 years ago for the long-standing role of subscription publishing as an important alternative to the regular trade remains as true today as it is as it was back then in those decades following the Civil War. Indeed, in 1869, the subscription trade was entering a period 
when it was to flourish and be responsible for the publication of many works, including ones by such authors as Frederick Douglass, Ulysses S. Grant, Harry Beecher Stowe, and Mark Twain. Over three centuries, subscription publishing in a wide variety of forms has remained a constant feature of the American cultural landscape. But the term subscription publishing has proved to be remarkably difficult to pin down uh, as it has been applied to a variety of publishing practices employed in the American colonies in the United States from the 18th to the present century. My lecture tonight begins by outlining the various forms that American subscription publishing has taken over these years, then concludes by teasing out at least some of the features that are shared by many, if not most of these different publishing arrangements and characterize them generally as part of the subscription trade. Subscription was a familiar method for subsidizing any number of projects in 17th and 18th century England, like Kickstarter or GoFundMe today, subscription schemes depended on contributions gathered from many people rather than on the patronage of aristocracy or startup investment from the wealthy to underwrite the costs of undertaking a project. Subscriptions were everywhere. They were, they were used to raise su support, the building of hospitals and other civic buildings, to underwrite insurance companies, to fund charities, scholarships, and en entertainments. Indeed, the large trading companies of 17th century England, the East India Company and the Hudson's Bay Company might, as joint stock companies, be considered of partaking of the subscription principle. And as in England, the American colonies employed subscription schemes to fund public enterprise. So, perhaps most famously by Benjamin Franklin and his friends in 1731 to found the library company on an original scheme to make books available to his friends and the residents of Philadelphia. The publication by books of books by subscription was only one of these many subscription schemes. In England, the first uh, book published by subscription is generally agreed to have been John Mishu's Doctor in Linguist, his Guide to Tongues in 11 Languages that was published in London in 1617. Over the following century, the subscription method was used by both booksellers, those who we today would characterize as publishers, and scholars and other individuals from time to time to underwrite the costs of publication of an expensive book. About 1720, the practice appears to become more common in England, perhaps a response to the passage of the Statute of Anne, the original copyright law in 1710. In the American colonies, the first recorded attempt at subscription publishing 
um, is documented by a proposal issued by William Bradford of Philadelphia on March 1688 for a large house Bible. His subscription came to nothing as far as we know, but over the following decades, a few further attempts can be documented. The first substantial work to appear in America containing a list of subscribers was Samuel Willard's A Complete Body of Divinity, issued in Boston in 1726. And thereafter, subscription publishing became a well-established feature of the American book trade. The basic procedure for the publication of a work as in, was, was to issue a proposal for the publication of a work as a newspaper adver advertisement or as a separate broadside flyer, broadside or flyer distributed to a small network of agents who had agreed to accept subscriptions. And here is one of these, the proposals for Jonathan Edwards' David uh, biography of David Brainard, uh, apostle to the Indians, or martyr to the Indians. And you can see it's there's the proposals and then uh, a list of subscribers handwritten in. Um, if the response to the proposals was adequate, the initiator of the scheme, either author, bookseller, or printer, went ahead and put the work to press. Often, however, the response wasn't, and many subscription works that were proposed never appeared, or only appeared many years after the original proposal. Many, but not all, printed a list of subscribers as part of the work. But my belief is, list or no, most substantial works that appeared in colonial America during the 18th century that were not sponsored by an institution or a patron were in fact likely published by subscription, at least in part. By the final years of the colonial period, the subscribers lists in several works Charles Churchill's Poems, a 1768 reissue of London Sheets by James Rivington of New York, and William Robertson's History of the Reign of Charles V and Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, both of 1770-1771, printed and published by the colorful Robert Bell of Philadelphia, proves that at least some subscription works were reaching an extensive, if not national, market in the American colonies. A subscription book from the early years of the American nation, while perhaps exceptional in some ways, serves to illustrate many aspects of the subscription system of 18th century America. On March 1st, 1790, three uh, New York printers, Robert Hodge, Thomas Allen, and uh, Samuel Campbell, issued proposals to publish a subscription edition 
of Brown's self-interpreting folio family Bible. It was to be a genuine American edition, the largest and cheapest ever proposed to be printed in the United States. And in addition to comprising the text of the Old and New Testaments and the Apocrypha, it would be embellished with a variety of elegant copper plates and illustrated with notes and annotations, theological, historical, geographical, systematical, chronological, biographical, practical, critical, explanatory, moral, and divine. The conditions of publication included in the proposals are typical. The work was to be printed as a large folio on fine paper of American manufacture with a large and new type cast on purpose for this work and would be completed in 40 numbers issued regularly every two weeks. Every other number would be embellished with a beautiful and elegant engraving executed by an ingenious American artist. This could all be had for 25 cents per fortnightly number, printed to begin on the 1st of June, 1790. Uh, subscriptions uh, were to be received by the publishers in New York, as well as by 37 agents in 25 cities and towns, stretching from Newburyport, Massachusetts to Savannah, Georgia. More interesting, perhaps of, because of its rhetoric, is a long address to the citizens of the United States that the publishers included with their proposal. Here, the publishers urged the public to subscribe to this endeavor for patriotic reasons. They have every reason to hope, the publishers, that their endeavors to furnish the public with an unparalleled work of so general utility at a lower rate than it could be imported and thereby not only saving this purchaser, but adding to the circulation of money in the United States, as well as the encouragement of domestic manufacturers will meet the approbation of every well-wisher to this country. Furthermore, this patriotic enterprise was designed to be available at all as the modest, as the mode of publishing will enable persons of the narrowest circumstances to become subscribers. The publishers assured the public, a day laborer may furnish his family with this inestimable work without sensible diminution of his usual wages. One quarter dollar a fortnight is a sum so inconsiderable that it can be no object to any class of citizen. The subscription was indeed a success. And here is a, uh, a second a version of the proposals that was printed on the back wrapper of uh, a magazine of the period, the Universal Asylum. And uh, 
perhaps it gives a little bit more sense of what the proposals were. As promised, the Bible was completed in 40 numbers in April 1972, and it is indeed elegant and superior as promised. But it is also patriotic. There's the title page, not a particularly pretty copy, but there's offset from the frontispiece, as you can see. At the head of the subscription list is President George Washington. You can barely see it, but that should help. Um, but thereafter, subscribers are grouped alphabetically by name. This arrangement downplays regional identity, and most subscribers are characterized by occupation before they are by location. Here is a grocer, a joiner, a butcher, a carpenter, two shoemakers, a gunsmith, a cartman, to consider only the first dozen or so names listed under the A's. This feature is uncommon in subscription lists, but it does serve to emphasize that this handsome book is the patronage, not of, uh, is the product not of patronage, wealth, or even speculation. Rather, it is the result of the contributions of many ordinary working citizens of the United States who participated in subscription to create what could be thought of as a truly national and truly democratic American Bible. In the new nation, subscription publishing began to take on a new form. In Philadelphia, Matthew Carey published two works, Guthrie's New System of Modern Geography, 1794-95, and Goldsmith's History of the Earth and Animated Nature of 1795 in a new way. For example, for the former, he gathered a remarkable 1,200 pre-publication -pre subscriptions, but then he went ahead and printed 2,500 copies. To dispose of the extra copies, Carey went into partnership with the irascible Parson Weems, who traveled around the countryside the Chesapeake and Virginia, taking orders for and establishing depots where he could deposit books from Carey's stock. Weems referred to this kind of bookselling as the, quote, forced, unquote, trade. The use of traveling agents, or what came to be known as canvases, became a chief characteristic of the 19th century subscription trade. Many canvases were hardly as colorful or as closely associated with the publisher as Parson Weeds, however. Typically an amateur who canvassed part-time or on an occasional basis, the 19th century canvasser most likely answered to a general agent who had a specific territory to cover and only secondarily to the actual publisher. This last, however, attempted uh, to tutor the canvasser 
by means of printed instructions on how best to convince a customer to subscribe to a word. And here is a, uh, one of those manuals. And there's another. Key to the canvas's sales pitch was an elaborate prop, the canvassing book, which in its fullest form consisted of the title page and preliminaries of the work being canvassed, along with a selection of pages from the text itself, a selection of testimonials from influential people, a printed statement of the terms of subscription blank pages for entering the names of subscribers and some sort of representation of the different bindings that the subscriber could choose among. And I have here the canvassing book for Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. This is the front cover, not of, uh, it looks like the front cover of the book itself, but it's actually the front cover of the canvassing book. Here's the title page. Uh, this is the last page of text that it only includes a few selected pages of text. There's Huck's heading out to the territories with a caption, what does it say? Something like, um, well, I can't read it, but perhaps you can. Uh, and then uh, some advertising material and then the terms, and you can see here, it's offered in three different bindings, and these are blank pages for, uh, though you can see the terms more clearly. So there, is the, there are the terms and just the rhetoric of it. You know, a book for the young and the old, the rich and the poor, a cure for melancholy. Nine-tenths of our ills are due to an overburdened mind, an overtaxed brain, and, or imaginary troubles that never come. An amusing book is a panacea more agreeable than medicine and less expensive than doctor's bills, etc. This is all um, Huck Finn. As an English teacher, I never knew all this. I could have sold my students. Um, and there are some uh, subscribers in this particular one. And then finally, this is the back cover, which shows you the spine of the um, book, if it were the real volume. And then you can see it comes in two different kinds of cloth, a calf, oops, a calf and a Morocco. And this is the copy belongs to C. Waller Barrett or the University of Virginia Special Collections. Um, the canvasser, after signing up a subscriber, was expected to visit presenters, to visit customers twice. First, to convince them to place an order then a second time to deliver the book and collect the money. The 19th century saw the industrialization of book production and subscription publishers took full advantage of the possibilities introduced by the use of printing plates, 
wood engraving and other methods for reproducing illustrations and new binding techniques and styles. The typical subscription book was distinctive and easily recognizable today. Bulky, often printed on spongy paper in large type, well leaded, heavy, heavily illustrated, and flashily bound. Certain topics and subject matter were also particularly suited for subscription books. Timely topics such as accounts of the Civil War or later floods and other natural disasters. Collective biographies, reference works, for example, though the text was not always as fresh as it purported to be. Subscription books were highly priced, often half, as, half again as much as a comparable trade book a premium required to cover the large commissions afforded to the general agents and canvassers. An alternative form of subscription publishing, books issued serial, serially in numbers or parts, as was Brown's Bible discussed earlier, also flourished during the 19th century. These might be expensively printed illustrated technical or color plate books, such as Audubon's various editions containing illustrations of American birds and quadrupeds. And there's the prospectus for uh, Audubon's, the big elephant folio of Audubon as it happens, or, uh, and, uh, or Picturesque America, a book full of landscape views, or they could be cheaply printed paper-covered pamphlets or books, often issued in number series, distributed via second-class postage news agents or on trains. Here one thinks of such successes as Beatles dime novels, or the many reprints that the mostly foreign authors issued in the numerous cheap libraries of the 1870s and 80s before the Chase Act of 1891 legitimized international copyright of, uh, in the United States of America. The practices surrounding the publication of these works has much in common with that of regular periodicals, newspapers and magazines. And it indeed is often difficult to draw a clear line to distinguish the two. As in the case, as in the case, for example, with the extras published by New World and Brother Jonathan in the years following the panic of 1837. And during the 19th century, many publishers established themselves as a separate enterprise distinct from publishing, trade publishing, undertaken by firms. Uh, many in Hartford, but also others elsewhere in cities such as Philadelphia and Chicago, dedicated to the subscription business. As the century progressed, many of the larger trade publishers also established semi-independent subscription departments to supplement their regular business. By century's end, however, the dedicated subscription firm and its canvassers had fallen into disrepute 
and had garnered a negative reputation as purveyors of subpar, if not worthless books, bulked out to make them appear expensive and forced on customers by means of high pressure sales tactics. A second subscription book, this time from 1890, demonstrates many of the features of the 19th century subscription system. Henry M. Stanley's In Darkest Africa, the subject of the work was Emin Pasha Relief Expedition of 1886-89, one of the last major European expeditions into the interior of Africa of the, um, of the 19th century. After the rebel army of El Mahdi, the Islamic fundamentalist, captured Khartoum in early 1885 and executed George George Charles George Gordon, the governor general of Sudan, the, oops, the uh, Egyptian administration of that country collapsed. Um, Eman Pasha, a German naturalist who served as governor of Equatoria, a province in far southern Sudan, found himself isolated and on his own. The British public imagined Eman Pasha as a second Gordon in danger from the modests, and private funds were soon raised in support of a relief expedition. Stanley, the famous explorer, was engaged to lead the expedition and set out from London in January 1887. The route to Equatoria that Stanley chose, up the Congo River and then by land across Central Africa, proved longer and more difficult than he expected. And when Stanley finally reached Emin Pasha on Lake Albert at the end of April 1888, he was more in need of relief himself than the men he had set out to the man he had set out to rescue. Indeed, Emin Pasha had no real desire to leave Equatoria, though he welcomed the supplies and support that the expedition delivered. However, the arrival of Stanley's expedition served more to unsettle the region politically than to stabilize it. And eventually Stanley prevailed upon Emin Pasha to abandon Equatoria and to accompany him to the east coast of Africa. They arrived there in early December, 1889. Public interest in the expedition in both Europe and America was intense, fueled by scanty reports about the fate of Emin Pasha and from Stanley's expedition that had appeared intermittently in newspapers. Even before he set out, Stanley had laid plans for the ultimate publication of a full account of the expedition. Although the expedition had proved to be chaotic and difficult, in many ways, it, and in many ways it failed to achieve its goals, Stanley made sure to put his own actions in the very best light. In January 1890, he traveled from East Africa to Cairo where he settled down to write up his notes. 
His manuscript was quickly completed in just 50 days. Publication followed in late June of 1890. The competition among American publishers for the American rights to Stanley's account was, according to Edward Marston, the London publisher who organized the whole process, very keen. But the enterprise of Charles Scribner's son, not to mention a hefty payment to Stanley in addition to the regular royalty, won the day. Uh, American rights for this work must have been especially valuable because Stanley, as a naturalized citizen, was legally entitled to copyright protection in the United States at the time. Still, this fact did not keep unscrupulous subscription publishers from preparing misleading competing works of what Marston described as books of flashy pictures and extravagant bindings and matter made up from the very scant material supplied in Mr. Stanley's already published letters. Bumped out by other matter pillaged from his previous works. Publication days for the Scribner subscription edition in two volumes in, of In Darkest Africa was 28 June 1890. There it is. Uh, sales started out strong, but by there's the subscription terms. Uh, sales started out strong, but by the end of 1892, Subscription purchases had all they started, all but stopped. At that date, however, overall sales had reached the satisfactory, though hardly outstanding, number of 87, or just over 87,000. The Scribner firm had overestimated demand, however, and it had nearly 21,000 copies on hand, with little hope of selling them through subscription agents and canvassers. In a letter to Stanley in January 1893, the firm made a proposal for working off the surplus. It would offer copies as a premium in connection with Scribner's magazine as a combination price. This solution, basically a form of remaindering, was feasible only if Stanley agreed to accept a flat payment of 400 pounds in lieu of his regular royalty. After disposing of the surplus, Scribner, the Scribner firm proposed to Stanley to sell the book in future in a new edition in bookstores through the ordinary trade, paying him a reduced royalty. Stanley agreed, and the work remained available in that form for years. As the specialized subscription firms faded away at the end of the 19th century, Many trade publishers, such as Scribner's, expanded their subscription operations and began offering multi-volume sets sold on an installment plan. What these publishers had discovered was that most customers were honest enough to pay a monthly invoice when sent through the mail with each volume, especially if the set offered value for money. Thus, they could do without door-to-door -door canvassers and the hefty commissions that their use entailed. 
Beginning in the 1880s, multi-volume sets of the collected works of standard authors, including Americans whose works were beginning to emerge from copyright protection, were offered this way with great success. Note among these collected, note, noteworthy among these collected editions was the New York edition of Henry James's fiction, heavily revised and published by Charles Scribner's son in 24 volumes from 1907 to 1909. There you can see them. Other works issued by subscription included multi-volume encyclopedias and other reference works. Appleton's New American Cyclopedia, a precursor published from 1858 to 1863, had already been available only by subscription. Other multi-volume sets include collections of edifying reading material for children or adults. One thinks here of Charles W. Eliot's five-foot shelf of Harvard classics containing the texts that would provide the essentials of a liberal education for anyone who had just 15 minutes a day for reading. And there is just 10 of the 50 volumes that made up the five foot shelf. And there's one of the advertisements which assure you that 15 minutes a day are enough for basically an essentials of a liberal education. The, oops, the 20th century saw further variations on subscription publishing, perhaps most innovatively with the emergence of the book clubs in the 1920s. The Book of the Month Club, founded by in 1926 by Harry, Harry Sherman, was the pioneer. The BMOC, a promise to provide each month to subscribers who were made to feel overwhelmed and unable to choose wisely a title from among the many new trade publications that had been selected and endorsed by a panel of experts to suit the subscribers' needs. And there is, I believe, the original advertisement for the Book of the Month Club from the New York Times. Um, and you can see, uh, again, all of these things, the, the rhetoric involved is, is fascinating. The BOMC, prom, uh, Sherman's genius, however, was his introduction of the so-called negative option. Each month's selection was accompanied by a postcard that named the following month's selection. If the postcard was not returned by the subscriber declining the selection before a stated date, the choice was considered accepted and purchase price due. The advantage of this scheme, which amounted to what in effect were advance orders, was that it provided Sherman with the information needed to analyze the market for each work in detail and to avoid the pitfall of producing beyond market demand. Another 20th century development with ties to subscription publishing was the emergence of 
pocketbooks uh, and other mass market paperback imprints after 1939. These low cost books printed on cheap paper and in an adhesive binding with paper covers were distributed like magazines by the American News Company, which rack jobbed them in drugstores, train stations, and other places where traditionally books may not have been available. If a particular title had not sold out by the end of the month, the distributor or proprietor would simply remove the front cover to prove that it was still in stock but not sold and discard the remainder of the book so that a new title could take its place on the rack. Although not strictly a subscription scheme, the ongoing regular appetite for many readers for genre fiction, such as romance novels and mysteries, meant that publishers could reckon with an implied subscriber base of a certain size as they pursued their publishing program. Today, subscription publishing is still with us, even as trade publishing is undergoing profound changes as it adapts to the global world of multinational, multimedia um, conglomerates and Google and Amazon as and Google and Amazon.com operating in our brave new digital environment. Of course, book clubs and genre fiction and paperback still remain popular, but perhaps we who are academics are most affected by subscription publishing in our professional lives by the various digital resources that Redex, EBSCO, and other firms offer to our universities for an often quite hefty subscription fee for the use by their students and faculty. Fortunate indeed are those whose university library has the budget to provide access to all the data databases that we might need or want to use. We have come a long way, over three centuries, since William Bradford proposed to publish a family Bible by subscription back in 1688. To conclude, let me attempt to sketch out the various features that it seems to me characterize American subscription publishing in its many varieties. It's clear that no single feature is defining, except perhaps subscription publishing's distinction from trade publishing, and that different schemes involve each of these features to a different extent, if at all. So here I go. Subscription books, unlike trade books, usually depend on a distinctive production and marketing model, print to order rather than print on speculation. Subscription publishing usually involves taking the book to the customer rather than waiting for the customer to come to the book. Thus, books generally reach their customers through channels outside the traditional independent bookstore. As a corollary to the above, subscription publishing often involves a delay between when an order is placed and when the work is delivered and the purchase is completed. 
Subscription publishing frequently involves canvassers or agents who are amateurs and do not consider their involvement in the subscription business their full-time profession. Subscription publishing has often involved innovative or high-pressure selling methods, with the result that many purchasers are reluctant customers. There, that's a start. This talk has covered a great deal of ground, and you will likely have your own thoughts and ideas to add to mine. I look forward to your comments and suggestions during the question period and hope to learn from them. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. If you unscreen share, then we can, perfect, perfect. I will um, moderate the questions from the chat. Um, the first question is, how did booksellers hold subscribers accountable for their pledges? Did people risk reputation or public humiliation if they didn't uphold what they had promised to pay? They, they tried everything, but yes, um, uh, I mean, very high pressure, certainly in the 19th century, very high pressure techniques. Uh, in some schemes, I gather that in sometimes the subscribers had to pay a small part of the cost up front, but I don't think that was normal, I, 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 but I don't know. Sure. But yes, I mean, uh, you know, if you're selling the Bible in rural America, you could always remind your neighbor that uh, your remind someone that his neighbor has bought one and so be going to heaven and you wouldn't want to go to the other place, would you? Things like that. <laughs> we all we all remember that in England, of course, you typically paid uh, fifty percent up front and then fifty percent when you receive the book. So a different a different kind of model, and we remember that Samuel Johnson lost the subscriptions to Shakespeare, uh, even though he had received some of the money up front and, and that didn't do much for his reputation. Joan Friedman asks, um, do we know whether 25 cents uh, per fortnight really was affordable for a typical worker? I guess, Joan, you're the, you're the accounting specialist. Uh, uh, I always find trying to translate money into something that is equivalent to modern value, just a, a, a mug's game. Uh, you know, the publishers claim that this is true. Uh, I suspect for, for in Philadelphia, the city, uh, where, uh, or New York, both, you know, you had this class of uh, mechanics and working citizens who had their own sort of businesses and so on. It wasn't out of the question. Uh, I'm sure there were many people who were unable to even cost, to afford something like that. But it is, and I, I, I'm sorry that, copy I showed you the title page of isn't uh, as bright as some, but uh, you know, it's, it is a very elegant and uh, expensive book. 
with, you know, full of en engravings, not to mention those notes, you know, biographical, historical, etc., and divine, I might add. add. So. Is it fair to say, Michael, that so many of these books published by subscription were um, titles that were aspirational for a rising middle class, as it were, that they were, that to buy these books was a kind of an aspirational act to, to self-educate your family? Well, in, in many cases, or at least the publisher wanted you to think so. I mean, my parents, I remember when I was growing up, bought, um, I forget which encyclopedia, children's encyclopedia, volume by volume in the supermarket. And, you know, uh, they certainly didn't want, again, my neighbor's kids to get ahead in school when I didn't have a resource at hand to, um, you know, to, to do my homework. So, I mean, that was certainly a very strong element to many, but I mean, you know, what do you say about Audubon's elephant portfolio? Uh, you know, that's not an aspirational work. It's something completely different. Yeah. Um, a very interesting question. Uh, one of your auditors asks, were there many authors who published their own work and entered into the subscription publishing business through self-publishing? Was subscription used for self-publishing, do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, many African-American books uh, from the 19th century are subscription books. And there's this particular sort of group of books from the turn of the century that are uh, sort of collections of uh, biographical uh, accounts of accomplished African-Americans. And of course you had a very good targeted audience for those books, the rising middle class, African-American middle class. And that goes way back of a, um, you know, African-Americans in the Civil War uh, is, is a book that came out in the 1860s uh, and so on. But yes, there, um, you know, some of the early so-called slave narratives, not those published by the anti-slavery societies were subscription books. Uh, so yes, it's very much uh, something that for self-publishing. And then were those, that self-publishing not driven partly by already extant communities like church groups and so on? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, subscri subscription publishing is often targeted publishing. You're, there's an audience already out there that you uh, are writing for, mm -hmm. which is, uh, a slightly different, say, than trade publishing, where you just publish thing something that you think books will um, people will want and put them out in the bookstore for the books for people to come and find them. Okay, good. So I I'm the canvasser. I'm paraphrasing a question. I'm the canvasser. I go to Ken's doorstep. Uh, he says, yes, I write his name in the canvassing book. 
Now what happens to that list of names that I've gotten in the canvassing book? So we get the names by going door to door and, and the individuals agreeing. Now I have the canvassing book with pages of names. What happens next? Well, you, you, you would uh, submit. You, often you just tear them out of the canvassing book and pass them on to the general agent who would then be in touch with the publisher and the publisher would send to the general agent, uh, you know, uh, the supply in all the binding, different bindings that people had ordered. And he, and then the general agent would supply them to the canvasser. And then comes the tricky part, you know, where uh, you go to deliver the book and collect the money and you hope, you know, and people, of course, turned the lights out and hid in the kitchen and pretended they weren't home and so on. Uh, and there were, again, if you read those booklets, you can see their tricks to get the, the customer to pay up and so on. But uh, so there's this, there's a kind of middleman in there. Uh, and actually, uh, I, the book I chose by Stanley in Darkest Africa, we know a great deal about the distribution system because, uh, Ken, you'd like this, uh, the general agent for the Pacific region, Pacific Coast region in San Francisco couldn't meet his obligations to Scribner's. And so they eventually went to court and they had to, you know, issue a, uh, to deposit affidavits about all the agreements and so on. So, uh, and I've written this all up, uh, which uh, I can give you the reference if people want. But yes, that's basically what happened. That's great. We know about Gutenberg because Fuss took him to court, and we know about the <laughs> subscription volume because the Pacific guy got taken to court. That's well, I mean, kind of. Yeah, I mean, the book trade, I mean, the regular trade tries its best to stay out of court. They try to settle things among themselves, mm -hmm. but it's always very, very useful if they do go to court because then suddenly there's a record of things that uh, normally wouldn't be recorded. And so always look for that, you know, learn about probate and probate courts because there's lots of information there. Yeah. There's a, there's a very interesting question about the English jurisdiction, um, which says, well, what if I paid half the subscription price for a book in England and then the book was never published because there weren't enough subscribers, say, or because the author dies or the publisher, you know, the printer absconds or whatever. What, re what redress does the person have who has the subscription ticket? Is there any form of, um, of redress to get their money back? I think it's called a bottle of gin. <laughs> I mean, that's why, that's why I think that practice of paying up front was not very, that as common as sometimes believed. Because, you know, you know certainly in the American colonies, uh, you know, the, the proportion of 
those subscription books that were successful and those that were proposed, I, I mean, I would hesitate to make a guess. I suspect Donald Farron might be willing to do that based on his research. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're taking a, a bet or maybe you're not, you're just saying this book will never be subscribed and he's my neighbor, I'll look, I'll make him feel good and subscribe. I mean, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, and if you paid up front, you know, if he's your neighbor, I guess you don't speak to him, but. So an interesting question um, about past and present uh, comes up. Uh, do you see some relationship between the subscription, you know, practices and market that you've delineated and uh, more recent kind of practices of print on demand? I haven't thought about that. Um, I mean, I mean, print on demand, I mean, obviously has that, you know, print to order aspect to it. Um, and of course, it's it's often used by self-published books. I mean, whether one could think of it as a subscription scheme or not, I'd have to think further about that. Um, you know, what strikes me is most print-on-demand books don't really look like trade books. They they look like print-on-demand books, right. and uh, they're they're an odd thing. And we're getting more and more used to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dave Harper asks about the failure rate, which you've already uh, addressed a little bit. He, he, he relates subscription publishing uh, very intriguingly to modern versions of crowdfunding. Could we see, um, could we see uh, subscription publishing, say, in 19th century America as a kind of crowdfunding of a publishing enterprise? I think I mentioned Kickstarter and GoFundMe at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a subscription scheme. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I don't know if people use GoFundMe or Kickstarter to fund their books. I suppose some people do. I, you know, I don't hang out in, in Kickstarter looking for worthy causes to contribute to, but uh, yeah, those are certainly modern day digital era subscription schemes. Yeah. Uh, Nina Schneider asks, um, she's curious to know if subscribers may have failed to receive their copies because, because they moved house between the long time, sometimes between subscription, maybe moved to another community, maybe moved because of the exigencies of their jobs. Um, and now the canvasser doesn't have a way to get to them. Do the canvassers then sell that book on and keep the money for themselves? Is that a kind of Lanny app for, for canvassers? What, what happens when people change address or, or other mishaps in the connection occur? Well, uh, yeah, that's why canvassers are often very much short term. Uh, they, and what, 
what they often tried to do, which was strictly forbidden, was to sell it to a bookstore, to make them available in bookstores. And uh, they were not supposed to do that. And if they were caught, they would be, uh, you know. But, you know, I'm sure that canvassing was a terrible job because you thought you were going to make all this. It's like those ads on the back of comic books about how, or whatever, you know, how you can sell magazines and make a fortune. Uh, you know, it sounds, you know, they make it sound like it's true in your spare time, no less. But in fact, it doesn't work out. Um, I don't know about particularly people who move house, but uh, you know the, the problem of of delivering the book and collecting the cash is uh, is not an easy one, and that's really uh, now I didn't bring up because I I thought I'd already gone on long enough about in darkest Africa. But that book, as well as a lot of Mark Twain's book, had another feature that I didn't mention, which is in the binding, uh, those books had a numbered stamp, a serially numbered stamp, so that the publisher, if he bought a copy from a bookstore, could tear the binding off and see who had sold it. And this was an attempt to stop that process of dumping books. Mm -hmm. And bookstores quite liked them because, you know, they were expensive with this big commission so that they could undercut the agents and still make a profit if they just sold them at regular trade prices. So, but yes, of course. I, I had a friend in college who uh, worked summers selling Bibles by subscription in rural Texas. And she would, didn't really like to talk about it much. But she said that if she got in the front door, she made a sale. And she had all kinds of tricks for getting in the front door, you know, you know way beyond, can I have a glass of water, please, or something like that. Uh, but, you know, uh, but yes, as I say, there are often reluctant customers in the business. <laughs> right, right. Well, I will say my mother bought her Electrolux vacuum from, from a door-to-door -door salesman and the Fuller Brushman came to our house and we bought the World Book Encyclopedia from on subscription. Um, uh, because we certainly couldn't afford it otherwise, but we bought it, bought it in parts um, uh, from a door-to-door -door salesman. Uh, last question and a fitting one from Jane Gillis. She asks, how did you find this wealth of material on subscriptions? Um, do, do libraries keep information about this or is there a particular cataloging field that would help identify subscription publishing? How does one, how does one enter into this, this uh, vast and, and, and not entirely uncharted, but not completely charted territory? Uh, a number of things. First of all, the great collection of 19th century subscription 
uh, canvassing books and other material ephemera and so on is at the University of Pennsylvania's Kislak Center, uh, the Zinman Collection. Uh, and I did mention Lynn Farrington who helped me do this. Uh, I'm just thinking, the second, I believe that eventually this talk will be published. And the main reason I want to publish it is not for the talk, but for a list of further readings that I've been compiling so that I don't have to answer people's questions. <laughs> and the third thing I'd say is that I do not consider myself a expert in sub subscription publishing, but I talked about the seminar at AAS and I had long wanted to do a seminar because it would make force me to pull together everything I've learned over the years about subscription publishing and try to make sense of it. And um, I, as I say, I'm very grateful to the Antiquarian Society and Paul Erickson for allowing me to do that. Uh, and I guess you could say this evening is the fruit of that endeavor. But uh, I guess I hope that's helpful to, to Jane. I don't know uh, offhand, uh, you know, what, what um, Mark record field could be used. I, mean, I know which could be used, but I don't think there's any regular practice of the matter. And uh, it's true that some books turned out to be published by subscription, but you wouldn't think so unless you knew better. So that's... Yeah, yeah. A nice note about the University of Rochester's uh, uh, Special Collections Library has um, some, some interesting materials from the Wheatland Farmers Library. Um, uh, as well. There are other collections, but yes, the, the Kislak Center at Penn certainly probably is the, the place. Uh, I'd invite everyone uh, on the Zoom to join us either in the gather town reception or um, in the Zoom lounge, depending upon your predilection, but not before we, we thank Michael Winship for his talk with us tonight. And thank again, Ken Carmiol for, for his benefaction that's made all this possible, not just this year, but every year, forever and ever, I'll say it, amen. See you guys in the, uh, in the lounge one way or the other. Thanks guys. Thank you.